So how many, let me do a little poll here. How many of you have ever heard uh, the story of Esther before? Yeah, quite a few of you. All right, I was, I was, I'm surprised. It's not a book that's typically uh, gone through. And the reason why I ask is that if you grew up in the church or you attended Sunday school, men and women in the Bible in general, I'm making a generality here, were probably presented to you with this sort of glossed over like heroic sheen of invincibility that made them seem like they belonged more in the marble family of superheroes than in the actual family of God, right? And a lot of you guys have been sort of pitched that caricature of the, what we would sometimes call the heroes of the Bible. In fact, if you've ever been taught the book of Esther, there's a good chance that Esther was sold to you as just this model of loveliness and virtue, and that her cousin Mordecai, and again, Esther and Mordecai are the two main characters of the book, but that her and her cousin Mordecai was this pillar of integrity and values. And in actuality, the well actually part here at the beginning of my sermon is that we're going to see as we step through the series is how deeply God's people can be affected by compromise when they're surrounded by a culture of idols where faith is non-existent and the abuse of power runs rampant. Because what we actually see in the Bible are people's humanity on parade and in most cases, a faith that is just incredibly flawed and compromised. To summarize that, what I mean is that it ain't veggie tales. That's not what we really see when we dive into the lives of men and women in scripture who God is working in and through. Now, if we're being honest, man, this is the kind of murky middle that you and I exist in as Christians. And we struggle to hold fast to our faith because we're allured by the gods of our culture. We're sucked in by things, right? We're sucked in by materialism. We become enslaved in our addictions to pornography and overeating and entertainment. All of us, man, all of us have iPhones or those other phones uh, that have become like additional limbs on our bodies. I mean, am I lying about that? When we look at power, when we look at money, when we look at sex, what we see is that these things rule the unseen caverns of our life. We pray nobody sees. We live in a culture of compromise and that compromise leaks out and it leaks into places we'd be ashamed for anyone to ever know about ever. And then you guys are amening me on that one. By the way, in case you're thinking I'm talking about like those people over there, like I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me, I'm talking about Christians here, I'm talking about the church, followers of Christ who battle with compromises constantly. And what we're gonna see over the next 10 weeks is that, man, we are a lot like Esther. We are a people of faith living in a faithless world, in reality looking a lot more faithless than faithful if anyone ever decided to put a magnifying glass on us. Now, a little background to the book before we dive into chapter one. This is what's happening, okay? The Jewish nation had become an exiled people under Persia who'd become the ruling power of the day. And the king during the time of this story that we're diving into was a dude named King Ahasuerus who reigned in Susa, which was the capital city of Persia. So, um, just to set this up by way of introduction, for the Jewish people who were living in the capital of Persia, which was Susa, they would have been a minority group, okay? They would have been subjected, like most minorities are, to forms of suspicion and racism and bigotry 
Because what they were doing is they were living in and among and mingling with the Persian society. So this gives us just a tiny backdrop into what Esther and her cousin Mordecai would have been facing. So because of this, one of the main themes that we're going to be able to draw from Esther is this thing that we call providence. How many people have heard that word like in church circles? The providence of God. If I asked you what it meant, you'd probably be like, oh, shoot, you know, I, don't, I can't raise my hand on that one now. So what is, what is providence? Well, it's God working through, and this is how I'm going to define it, it's God working through the ordinary and mundane events of our lives to accomplish his will. So it's not him always doing something just spectacular and miraculous, you know, and fireworks and seas parting, you know, and all this crazy stuff happening. It's just him in control, sovereignly working through all the everyday events of our lives when it would seem to most people that he's just kind of invisible and he's kind of silent. And that's kind of the thread that we see God weaving through the book of Esther. What we like to think of providence as is God not generating any hype, okay? But still working unhindered through all the ordinary things that actually we subconsciously believe must be affecting him because he seems kind of quiet. But ironically, what we see here in Esther, again, is that his name is never even mentioned throughout the entire book. But for us, it would be a mistake to believe that silence is the same thing as absence because God is never, he's never absent. For example, if you listen to a recording of the London Symphony Orchestra today because it's gonna be snowy and you're really bored and you're depressed, um, what you're not going to see when you pop on that vinyl or that CD or you go to Spotify to steal money from all the artists who aren't making anything off Spotify, I don't know why I just said that, um, but what you're not going to see is the conductor when you listen to the London Symphony Orchestra. But every note of music you hear will be coming as the result of the conductor's guiding hand, all right? So in that sense, the book of Esther is going to show us that when it feels like God has abandoned us, we can trust that he hasn't. Let me flesh that out even further. Even when God seems hidden, he is orchestrating all things for our good and his glory, and we need to let this help us. And hopefully as we, as we storm through Esther, it will. So this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at three realities that emerge in this particular culture of compromise that Esther exists in, which by the way, will have a lot of relevance for us in our culture, where the temptation to adopt the idols of power, money, and sex, brothers and sisters, those run high. Those run high for us. So we're gonna unpack these three observations. Number one, that idolatry reigns. Idolatry reigns. And you can spell that R-A-I-G-N or R-A-I-N. I don't know, it kind of, kind of works the same definition-wise. Number two, an objector arises. And number three, we're gonna see that truth is exposed. So our first point is idolatry reigns. I'm gonna dive right into verse one of Esther chapter one. This is what it says. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. Thank you, finally, a period, right? The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 of them, paraphrase. 
And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyr, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Verse seven, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Let's stop right there as we look at how idolatry reigns in this culture. A couple of things jump out as we just dive right in here to the first nine verses. First, you get the distinct feel here that this is not going to be some rated E for everyone religious drama starring Kurt Cameron right? It's just not set up for us like that at all. The story of Esther begins like a trailer for a Tarantino film. Like we don't know what's going on, but it doesn't look real pretty, right? It doesn't look real G-rated. So get this, uh, the king of Persia gives a 180-day feast, all right? Let that sink in for all the leaders of the surrounding provinces, which some believe some commentators believe was to rally support for a future war that they were going to embark on with Greece. Now listen, we're talking about a party that goes on for six months, which by the way, just sounds exhausting. Like if we're being honest, right? I mean, you throw an afternoon party for a toddler and you're gonna feel like you need to go on like a, a week-long Caribbean cruise afterwards, right? This thing goes on for six months. So what's happening here by way of introduction is that the writer of Esther wants us to understand something, wants us to understand the kind of opulence and decadence and actually dangerous environment the king was able to establish with his power and influence as essentially the God of Persia. Look what it says here in verse four. While he showed the riches of his glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. Then verse six, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings and purple to silver rods and marble pillars. And get this, coach, uh, couches of gold and silver. I mean, you know, I've done a little shopping at Crate and Barrel, but like I haven't picked up the gold couch yet. I haven't picked up like the silver like love seat quite yet. I mean, so this is stuff that was just on display and it was available. Again, get the picture of it. Imagine what's going on here. This is not some modest dinner party, right? With friends on the back porch with a decent bottle of wine, sharing stories of fraternity life back in the day, right? That's not what's happening here. This is a dramatic flexing and it's a flexing of wealth and hedonism that we only get a glimpse of through bad reenactments on the History Channel, right, most of the time. But King Ahasuerus had acquired this thing called absolute power, which allowed him to present himself as the world's object of glory, splendor, and greatness. And he accomplishes that presentation by inviting all the people to indulge as freely as he does. So this is a dude that is schmoozing, man. This is a guy that is whining and dining. This is a brother who's read How to Win Friends and Influence People, and it's like working for him. Look what it says in verse eight. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no 
compulsion. There is no compulsion. So as much or as little as you want to consume, according to the level at which the king consumes, just roll with it. That's what he's saying. Just roll with it. The rule is, is that there is no rules. You guys following along with that? And here's the thing for us, all right? Here's the thing for us. It's relatable. It's actually relatable. It's not hard to imagine this kind of availability to indulge to your heart's content. I mean, I don't think it is. I mean, we live in one of the wealthiest cultures in world history. And this wealth that we all enjoy to some degree has allowed excess to become the norm. The problem, the problem is that this kind of untethered indulgence is idolatry. And where idolatry reigns, a misuse and an abuse of power become the norm. And this is what had become the norm under King A's reign, okay? Susa was not a safe place to be in. The failure to conform to cultural norms might result in death by the uninhibited ego of just this maniacal dictator. It wasn't safe. Susa was a place where human suffering intermingled with this hedonistic indulgence. So what do we do? What do you do in a society that puts no regulations on pleasure-seeking and indulgence? It's hard not to draw some comparisons between a hazardous and America, isn't it? Right? Because what does our culture do but invite us to worship the gods of power, the gods of money, the gods of sex and indulgence, as long as we check our brand of morality at the door? Dude, we're invited to the party just don't make a bummer out of it when you get there, right? Everyone's invited. There is no compulsion. As much or as little as you want to partake, let your, you know, Jiminy Cricket it out. Let your conscience be your guide, right? Or better yet, ignore your conscience altogether. What's interesting to point out here is that although Esther and Mordecai aren't mentioned, and by the way, they didn't come into the story till chapter two, they're at the party, they're at the party. They are some of the people for which this party was given and the edict was said, hey, no compulsion. So just keep that sort of logged away in your mind as we get deeper into this story. So not only does King Ahasuerus throw these two legendary feasts, but the queen, his queen, Queen Vashti, Vashti, I don't know, I'm rolling with Vashti, um, throws her own feast for the women that belonged to King Ahasuerus in verse nine. Now, don't miss that last line. The women that belonged to King Ahasuerus because the not so subtle indicator here is that women were seen as property of the king, which by the way, included the queen, right? Let's pick it up in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, help me here, Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the, queen, the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So first we see this culture where idolatry reigns, and then now we see an objector 
rising against it, right? And so just so you know, as we're reading this, this wasn't just some nice, respectful jester that King Ahasuerus was trying to make here to honor his wife before the people and the princes, right? Like, I want people to, like, see my wife. I want people to meet Melissa, right? Because she's wise, she's smart, she's funny sometimes, and she's beautiful. She's funny all the time. I'm totally joking. This was not that, okay? This was something completely different than that. This is a king who is as high as a kite wanting to parade his queen in front of the people and princes in unmentionable and objectionable ways as a way to objectify her and exalt himself in the process, okay? Mike Cosper, um, the guy whose book I just showed you, he makes a comment and he says this, it was never safe to be a woman in Persia. And on a night when the king and his attendants were drunk with wine and the promise of war, it was the least safe of all, he says. And then something simultaneously beautiful and unspeakable happens with the queen. She finally stands up to the abuse and says, no more, no more. This isn't a case of a wife disobeying her husband or not submitting to her husband. And in fact, if if it's ever been preached to you like that, they were wrong. This is not that. This is somebody who is standing up and against the abuse that has been inflicted on her by somebody with absolute power who owns her as property. And she finally says, no more. She finally says, it's not worth my life to put up with this kind of objectification and abuse any longer. And you know what? This was risky for her because the queen wasn't autonomous like we're learning. She was considered property of the king. She was expected to obey like anyone else and without question. And by the way, it's always risky to say no more, isn't it? To stand up and say, I object to your objectification. I need you guys all to listen to me really closely here. It's always risky to reject abuse, to refuse to be held under the brutal hand of an abuser, to say no more to somebody who has physically, emotionally, or spiritually harmed you. I mean, look, we have no evidence that Queen Vashti followed the God of the Jews, but followers of God today need to be objectors like Vashti. We need to stand against any and all kinds of abuse that literally permeates this particular culture of compromise that we live in right now. Why am I getting so heated about this right now? Because our churches have become so compromised by the culture that we are silent when we should be shouting from the rooftops for justice, mercy, exposure, and protection to abuses of all kinds. It's a, listen, it is a damaged and broken church that allows atrocities against image bearers of God to go ignored and unmentioned. Not us. You guys feeling me right now? Not us. You guys following? You guys tracking with what's going on with the Southern Baptist Convention right now? That's not, any, that's not anything against Southern Baptist churches as a whole. Not us. There's no concealment of power here. We don't put up with that kind of abuse or misuse of power. We expose it. 
Because the victims of these kinds of crimes are image bearers of God who are loved, delighted in, cared for, and known by the creator of the universe. So listen. I'm going to settle here a minute. If any of you are suffering any kind of physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual abuses, let me encourage you to open up. You have leaders and elders that love you, that care for you deeply. We understand. We understand the cycle of abuse that leads to the silence too. But I would plead with you to be courageous and let God's word here give you courage to trust the God who hears you and knows you and loves you. And to not let silence be the guiding principle of your life anymore. Because I want you all to know something about the kind of church that we are and that we aspire to be. We are a church that seeks to walk with the wounded and protect the flock from those that inflict harm on fellow image bearers of God. It is of utmost importance to the leaders of this church. And we believe that unlike Vashti, who had no recourse, who had no one to protect her and to listen to her and to shield her, you do. Because Jesus is your king now. Jesus is the king who doesn't expose your nakedness, but he covers it. Jesus doesn't use your shame as entertainment, but he removes your shame by his broken body. He removes your shame by his shed blood on the cross. You can be a courageous objector because somebody has already objected in your place and his name is Jesus. Do you hear me? We want truth to be exposed and that's what happens here in verse 13 where I'm gonna pick up. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Mirz, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So this gives you an idea of the level of men that were sitting in the king's council. Verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Verse 16, the Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the province of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. Verse 18, this very day the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she Verse 20, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. 
This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in his own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So if you are a woman, please don't misunderstand what this is saying. This is not going where you think, right? And if this is the way that you've heard this preached. I want to apologize because your pastor or your Sunday school teacher were wrong. And they were taking something and then they were taking Ephesians 5, which tell, talks about the roles of men and the women in the home, where it talks about men sacrificing and dying for the sake and for the love of their wives and women submitting to their husbands through that Christ-like sacrifice. They try to apply it there as a way to get women to obey. It's not talking about that. And if that's another way that this passage has been used against you to have to submit to things that God is not calling you to submit to, then that can stop. Then that can stop. But what we see here is truth becoming exposed. And at the same time, we don't want to miss some of the subtle humor in this, okay? So we'll take it back a little bit. We'll, we'll bring it back. You have the most powerful king in the world, just walk with me through this, who is one command away from getting anything he desires, unable to get his own queen to make an appearance at his party, okay? There's something in that, right? There's something even in the way the author writes it that's made us to kind of pull back and go, really? This is what's really going on? So the king feels what someone in his position must never feel, which is what? Which is disrespect and humiliation. And not only that, but his seven princes freak out, right? When they consider what their own wives might do to them. So they start whining, right? They're like, none of our wives are going to listen to us when they find out what Queen Vashti did, right? And you have to laugh at this. You have to laugh at the weakness and lack of control on display here. What we see here is something most of us know, and it's that respect and honor is not something you can demand, but it's something that has to be earned through love and honor and mutual respect. We know those things intrinsically. What's happening in these final verses of chapter one is that truth now is finally being exposed in a culture of compromise where idolatry reigns supreme. The king does not have total power. Because when an objector arises, it strips him of his ability to abuse his power, thereby, in this moment, rendering him what? Powerless, right? This is another example of providence. This is another example of the invisible hand of God who works to do what? To undo and disable all those he has given power to and show whose throne actually reigns supreme. The most powerful man in the world emasculated within minutes. So an edict is sent out to all the provinces to make sure that the hierarchy that's been established remains intact. Once again, even after truth is exposed, King Ahasuerus finds a way to gain favor and support with all the men in all the provinces that he wants fighting his battles. So sadly, the cycle continues. Idolatry reigns, objectors arise, and when truth is exposed, there is a like nuclear effort to regain power and control. Because when a heart with that kind of misuse and abuse of power goes untethered and continues cycling, this pattern will not change. 
it will not change. So here's where I'm gonna end our time today. For those of us who are tempted toward these gods, for those of us who are tempted toward the gods of power and money and wealth and decadence and sexual control, what do we do? How do we guard against emulating this kind of worldly misuse of power and this sort of unholy demand for love and respect. Dr. Diane Langberg says this, we must be aware of the reality of systemic abuse and abusive systems. Oppression is literally a crushing of the image of God in a human being. So if you find yourself in this and maybe some things now are surfacing in your heart via the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, and you realize, man, I feel like I really press in to some of these things, maybe even some ways that I don't realize, or I feel like there's some tension in me right now. There, there's something that feels unsettled in me right now. What do, what do I do? How do I guard against this? Well, what we're talking about here is full-scale acknowledgement of those things. We're talking about confession of your sin. We're talking about repentance for grieving the heart of God and damaging other image bearers of God, other sons and daughters of God. Because it is a denial of God's grace that depletes the flourishing of another human being. God is calling you to repentance. He's calling you to righteousness today because this is idolatry. But here's the good news, is that God is compassionate. And he's even compassionate towards idolaters who come to him in humility and seek to return to Jesus as the actual and true and living God of their life. Matthew 20, 25 reminds us of this, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. They lorded over people, he's saying, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This is what Jesus says, listen, it shall not be so among you. He's talking to his people. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. What's our model for this? Well, he says it, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is how you do an about face in a culture that tempts you to adopt their compromises of control, manipulation, and abuse. And you are not without hope or recourse if you turn to Jesus and learn to use the power God has given to you for the fruitfulness and flourishing of others. In fact, listen, God gives influence. God gives power so that others will better walk in the grace, mercy, and light that Jesus has given us to walk in. All of us have a measure of influence. All of us have a measure of power. However great, however small, it's what we do with it in the area that God has given us to in the ways that we can serve and affect others. So today is the day that you repent, that you acknowledge and you believe the gospel. You believe what God has told us about what real power is when we look at the life of his son. Secondly, for those of you who have fallen victim to misuses and abuses of power, money, and sex, let me encourage you again 
It's time to rise. It's time to object. And it's time to let the truth be exposed, recognizing, listen, that you are not at fault and that there is a God who wants to bring you under the shadow of his wings. Because unlike King Ahasuerus, the real king we serve will not banish you. He will believe you. He will restore you from the brink of hopelessness that has permeated your life, maybe for years and years. And then finally, for all of us tempted to compromise in a culture of God playing, we need to realize that God allows no one to play like this forever. No one. How much do these idols characterize your life? How much do they? How much has the abuse of them contributed to the pain of another image bearer of God? I mean, do you think you have power? Do you think these things give you control and power? The most powerful king in the ancient world was emasculated with one refusal by his wife. That's not power. That's God playing and God will not let this kind of behavior play out forever. So you gotta ask yourself, man, what is your version of this? Listen to what the Psalms tell us, Psalm 2. Listen to what it tells us about this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Sound familiar? They take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we will not be held down. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In the end, it's like playing a game of risk and believing you have significant power plays because you pushed a plastic piece, a game piece. That's how ridiculous it is. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He doesn't laugh at those who have suffered abuse in the hands of tyrants, but at those who use their power and influence to inflict that abuse. But we don't have a God-like king who misuses and abuses his power, do we? Listen, we have a king named Jesus who is God who was set on the holy hill of Calvary by his father. He is a king who is gentle. He's a king who is lowly in heart, who lowered himself from the heavens so that our futile but harmful displays of power might be transformed into acts of flourishing. Instead of demanding love and respect, we deny ourselves and take up our cross and learn to love and serve even our enemies. That's the true power that comes from the true king who is over all the provinces of the world. Nobody suffered from a misuse and abuse of power as much as Jesus did. The creator of the universe allowed the creatures of his universe to exert the ungodliest of power against him so that all might see 
the flourishing power of a God who desires to redeem the compromised. This is the good news. Let's pray.